I'm often amazed by my clients. They constantly reset my notion of what human beings can endure and overcome. Sometimes I find myself shaking my head after they leave in a mixture of astonishment and admiration. The human spirit can be indomitable, but it can also be crushed. And it leaves me pondering the question, how much hardship is too much? Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that my clients are my inspiration. People ask me all the time where I get the ideas for the podcast week to week. And the answer is my clients. They are my inspiration. They teach me how to live. They teach me how to survive. They teach me how to transform wounds into wisdom. And they inspire this podcast every single week. So a recent session opened up a can of worms in my heart, in my mind, and the idea came up in session. The question arose in session, why do some people use their hardship to rise? They overcome. They move beyond it. They find purpose and their hardship becomes the fuel for their lives. And some people succumb to it. It becomes the thing that defines them. They take on sort of a victim mentality and they can't ever go beyond it. And it becomes the reason or the excuse for why they can't live a better life, a healthier life. They wear their hardship like a garment. It covers everything they are. Everything else they are, their resources, their strengths, their beauty, their talents, it's just sort of covered in the pain of what they've been through. And tragically, even for some people, that hardship erodes their hope into just dust, fine dust, and it looks more rational to end their life than to live it. And that's really the most bleak end of the line. But what makes the difference? Why do some people use their hardship to thrive and some people use their hardship to quit? And how much hardship is too much? Because sometimes I sit with clients and they've endured 10 times what I did and they're strong and they're living extraordinary lives. And then some people are seemingly giving up. And if I'm comparing them, to myself or anybody else, I might say to myself, well, geez, that doesn't sound as tragic as somebody else who's not giving up. Do you see? So I've been asking myself, like, is it individual? Is there a standard? Like how much hardship is too much? Part of what I believe allows us to rise above or to succumb is our expectation of life. And this is a lot of why I did the podcast I did last week and the week before. We've got to reset our expectation of life. If you believe, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, welcome, first of all. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Please share this podcast if you like it. <laughs> but if you're listening for the first time, you're going to hear me say this a lot on this podcast because it's so important for your mental health. Life is difficult. So stop expecting it to be easy. Stop expecting it to be fair all the time. Stop expecting it to give you everything you want. That is not the nature of life. And you are going to wind up very disappointed and probably depressed and anxious. Okay, so the first thing I think that helps us create grit is understanding that life is not, and there is a podcast episode on this, it is not a pony ride and a hot fudge sundae. It's not supposed to be easy. We meet ourselves in hardship. And I'm going to say so much about this today. We come face to face and toe to toe with our strength, with our courage in hardship. 
When does it become too much for some people? When do they just throw up their hands and say, I quit, I can't get through this? So let's think through when we look at what allows people to endure a hardship, what gives them the internal strength to get through it? Now, part of it, like I said, is expectations. If people expect life to be hard, they will probably get through hardship without the shock and the disappointment and the distress that comes with expecting life to be easy. If we expect life to be easy, we are actually making it harder for ourselves. Does that make sense? But if we know that life is hard and we expect life to be hard, it's going to present us with struggles and challenges. That is the nature of life itself. We will more easily embrace those struggles and those obstacles and challenges because we're going to know they're normal. But... Let's take a little bit more of a scientific look at this because the field has actually studied and identified many factors that seem to indicate a higher chance of not only survival, but a purposeful, enjoyable life. One of them is a reason for living. And very often people's reason for living is relational. So they have children or they have parents that depend on them. They have siblings, friends, even pets. Some people, we've heard this, right? They will refuse to take their own life because who would take care of my dog? Who would take care of my cat, even though cats don't need anyone to take care of them. Just kidding. (laughs) Even meaningful work. If people are involved in work that's very meaningful, um, it gives them a reason for living. And it's usually relationships outside of ourselves. It's people to whom we feel responsible. Feeling that we are needed is actually really important. It's very important for a reason for living. We need to feel like our life is needed and necessary by other people. It's connected to a sense of duty, and duty is a very powerful motivator. Another reason that's been studied for why people survive and thrive is a support system. That means we have meaningful contact with other people who are either going through what we've gone through in real time, like they're in it with us, or they can empathize with us and give us sort of meaningful support around the struggle that we're in. But it very often communicates to us that we're not alone. And humans are the most social creatures on planet Earth. Yeah, but Vanessa, some people live like hermits. Yes, they do. And they are very rare. Look around. If you live in the city, the country, the sticks, I don't care where you live. People live in relationship. Human beings crave it. Even a hermit has a dog. Even a hermit can communicate or wants to like sort of be in some sort of relationship with birds, fish, reptile. I don't care what it is. We are the most social creatures on planet Earth. So having a support system for us is not a weakness. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that later. It is not an option. It is a necessity. And that actually has been measured and studied to be part of the reason why people thrive. And then there's something called grit. And we don't understand a whole lot about grit in that we don't really know if it's learned or inherited right? Is it nature or nurture? We don't really know the answer to that. Scientists, social scientists have some idea, but we do know this. When grit is present, humans become the most resilient, creative, astonishing creatures. Grit is, and I'll say more about this later, but it's defined as the passion and perseverance for long-time goals. So we need a reason for living. We need a support system. And somehow within ourselves, we need something called grit. Now, why am I even talking about this? Because everybody wants to live their best life. Didn't that phrase arise like in the last 10 years? Was it Oprah? Live your best life. Everybody wants to live their best life. So they take selfies of themselves on vacation. I'm living my best life. 
you know, the perfect family Christmas, living my best life. Now, this means different things to different people. To some, it means that sort of if you're listening in the United States, I'm going to call it the American dream, but it's sort of a traditional dream of, you know, the house and the spouse and the kids and the dog and the cat. Okay, throw in a white picket fence. I mean, this is a very beautiful, lovely, traditional dream for life. That's living, quote, your best life. And yet many people in that situation are miserable. So that doesn't complete the picture, but that may be the dream. Okay, that's what we envision would make us happy. For some, it means inner peace, which is, frankly, a much more existentially effective goal. For some of us, it means changing the world, making a contribution that heals the wounds that people suffer, heals the wounds we've inflicted on ourselves as a human race. For some, it means just waking up in the morning with a clear mind. For some of you, it means waking up in the morning with a sober mind and simply living with peace, the joy that comes from sobriety. So whatever it means, and it means many things, I could keep going, everyone wants it. No one who's mentally grounded in reality, who's not a psychopath or a total sadist or masochist, no one is out there like living my worst life, trying to live my worst life. Bring it. Worst day ever. Hashtag the best. Nobody's doing this. We're trying to get out of the pain and into pleasure. We're trying to get out of our pain and into peace. It's pretty much universal. Everybody wants to live their best life. So we've got to ask and answer a question for ourselves. How in the world do we do this in a world that's throwing adversity at us no matter what? Friends, no one gets by unscathed. No one is living a life without suffering. I promise you this. I have been practicing in Nashville for umpteen years, however long it's been. And Nashville has different neighborhoods like every city. And the posh, you know, I came from New York. So the Park Avenue of Nashville is called Bellmead. And they're beautiful homes and perfectly manicured yards, and blah, 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 blah. Okay, the doctors and the lawyers and the whatevers. And then I've counseled people who are living in poverty And I've counseled people in the inner cities and I've counseled people of every socioeconomic background. And I will tell you this, and I hate to break it to you, especially if you live on the right side of the tracks. Okay, everybody's got the same problems in different houses. I promise you, I have seen this from the inside of the sausage making factory. I know how the sausage is made. I have counseled clergy. I have counseled pastors. I've counseled celebrities. I've counseled the rich. I've counseled the poor. I've counseled the beautiful. I've counseled those who would society would say are unattractive. I've counseled everybody. And I will tell you, it is the same problems in different houses. So what do we do with that? I hope that I've popped a lot of the bubbles just right now with that little segment. I've hoped I've hoped I've popped a lot of your bubbles about the grass is greener on the other side. Please hear me. It's not. Instagram is a lie. Okay, I I have posted beautiful pictures taken by professional photographers. You don't want to know what I look like right now. Sitting at my desk with my greasy hair in a ponytail, my glasses on, and my PJs and my sweater over my PJs that doesn't match my PJs. Okay, this is real life. I haven't even brushed my teeth yet. This is real life. Okay, so Instagram is a lie. Social media is a lie. Same problems, different houses. So how do we thrive When suffering is inevitable and so is unfairness. Now, this is a big problem because 
I didn't grow up in one of those houses. I grew up in a nice house, but I didn't grow up like that. I didn't grow up going to private school. I'm talking about Belmede. Nor did I grow up in poverty. So I grew up, you know, in that sort of American middle range, what we call the middle class. There was hardship. There was trauma. I can tell you honestly that I've met some people who grew up on the right side of the tracks that had a much worse time than I did growing up. And then I can tell you that I know people who grew up on the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks who had a much more loving family than I did, much healthier. So it's it's arbitrary. It's totally arbitrary. Life is unfair and life is hard. And that's the end of the podcast. See ya. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's not where we're going to stop. Okay. But this is sort of a strange reality of life. Some people's stories are much harder than ours. Some seem much easier. For some, the pressure of others' expectations is enough to crush them under the weight. And for others, they can sustain mind-blowing trauma after trauma and emerge stronger than before. So what do we do with the hardship? How do we need to think about it in order to thrive? What I want to talk about today is the whole story. Not just the problem, not just the unfairness, not just the trauma, and not just the hardship, but what you have done and can do to get through. All right, let's dive in. Grit. I'm going to talk about grit first. Again, grit is a passion and perseverance for a long time goal. Now, those goals can be professional. They can be personal. They could even be spiritual. It's a goal. Okay. It could be a physical goal, like getting into shape, weight loss, putting on muscle, whatever it is. But grit tells us what we will do. It's the sentence in our head that says, I will do this. Now, will is a noun and a verb. Okay. The noun, I have the will to get through or a will, like your last will and testament. But as a verb, it is this. It is an expression of the future or inevitable events. So what does that sound like? Professionally, I will get that degree. I will get that promotion. I will compete with everything I have and rise in my field. I will start my own business, okay? Personal, I will find a suitable partner. I will live beyond this trauma. I will find meaning in my life, okay? Whatever your goal is, grit has the I will statement attached to it. And we're starting to get a sense of the power of that word, will, because we are determining future and inevitable events in our lives. Come hell or high water, I will do this. Okay. Now, the person who's done probably the most meaningful and recent research on grit, her name is Angela Duckworth. She's a social psychologist. And if you go to her website, I think it's AngelaDuckworth.com, but I'll put a link in the show notes. You can actually take a quiz and it's a quiz on how gritty you are. It measures your grit. And so Jared and I took it. Of course, I made him take this. And he's grittier than I am. He has more grit. Mine was like a 3.92 and Jared's was like a 4.08 out of five. That's relevant. Out of five. So he is marginally grittier than I am, but he is still grittier. Um, and it's a really interesting quiz. I mean, I, I sat there and I took it and then I'm like, can you come sit down next to me and make sure I'm answering these things right? Because of course, you know, my ego wants to believe I'm gritty, but I don't want to lie to myself. What if I'm not at all? So take that grit quiz. It's very interesting. But what Angela Duckworth has discovered in her studies and in her research is that grit is more indicative and important in the prediction of success than intelligence or education. It is actually more indicative. People who succeed are gritty. They are not necessarily educated in the fanciest universities. They are not necessarily more intelligent. They are grittier. And so this phrase is on her, her website, and I love it. 
It says this, quote, it's what goes through your head when you fall down and how that, not talent or luck, makes all the difference, end quote. So that's grit, okay? Now, I'm gonna say a little bit more about this in a minute. Grit can be innate. Again, we don't know this yet, but we know that it can be learned. We can develop grit. So what I want to do here for a moment is talk about something that therapists do all the time and we're trained to do it. It's part of what we learn in graduate school when you're learning counseling interventions and how to actually do the work of therapy in the room. Okay. And it's called resourcing. And it's a term used in psychotherapy that allows the therapist and the client together in the room to identify the strengths the client either is exhibiting or has exhibited in the struggles they've gone through. So what we're doing is we're looking for resources and we're using what's happening in the session to point to the strengths that the client innately has. So you're going to be surprised at some of these. Okay. Some of our resources are psychomotor. Now, what do I mean by psychomotor? I mean, these are like the ingrained habits that we're physically in things like posture or tapping your finger or bouncing your knee. Now, Vanessa, how in the world is posture a resource? Well, if you were in an unsafe environment and you learned to slump down instead of stand up tall, you probably stayed safe. Posture is a resource. It's anything that gives us insight into how you survived. I've got a lot of of clients who tap, you know, they'll tap their hands or they fidget or they'll, you know, tap their foot, they bounce their foot. And typically, and this is called gestalt therapy, if I point to that and I say, hey, what's going on there? What are you feeling? They'll immediately stop that self-consciousness. They'll immediately stop. What? What? Well, you're bouncing your foot. I don't know. I always do that. Okay. well, let's see what happens when you stop. And I've done entire sessions with clients where I'll say, "Okay, go back to bouncing. Okay, now stop. And when they stop, all the emotion comes up. Now, Vanessa, how is that a resource? Because they were using something as simple as a psychomotor habit, bouncing your foot to regulate their own emotional state. Another resource is support systems. Some people are really good at establishing support systems. They have good friends. Very often they have good friends because they are good friends, okay? But they know when to lean on others when they lack the strength to stand themselves. That is a resource. Intelligence, that's a natural resource that gives us the ability to be creative about problem solving and I will guarantee you that anyone listening to this podcast, oh, I'm not very smart. Actually, I promise you, you are probably more of a creative problem solver than you know. Distraction and medicating is actually a resource. Now, for those of you who have lived with an addict who's in active addiction, this is going to make your skin crawl. And I have as well. And it's really, really ugly. And it's really, really hard. But I will say this. It is a different way of looking at addiction. When we look at addiction through the lens of a resource instead of a weakness, what we realize is that that drug or the alcohol kept that person alive. And if they would have felt the feelings they would have been feeling, they probably would have ended their lives. And I know a lot of recovered alcoholics and recovered drug addicts who will say eventually the drug, the substance is what kept me alive. Okay, so we're resourcing that too. That kept you alive. It's what saved you. Self-distorting thoughts. What does that mean? It means we see ourselves differently than we actually are. Okay, and I'm not going to get into the minutia of self-perception, but 
We all know what this is like. Okay, a classically self-distorting thought would be like anorexia. You see yourself. If you have anorexia, you see yourself as overweight. The rest of the world sees you as wasting away. Very, very, very skinny. Okay, but we can have very self-distorting thoughts in other ways. Like we might say that we have low self-esteem and we might say that low self-esteem is bad. But I would counter that and say it can actually be a resource because when playing small and staying out of the spotlight keeps you safe, it keeps you out of danger. That's a resource. We might have very labeled personality states. What does label mean? It means just fluid, like uh, constantly changing. Okay. And we call these people chameleons, right? They become a different person around different people. We don't trust them. We don't like them. We typically like people who are who they are, but that is a resource. Why? Because if they were unsafe in an unsafe environment and they had to change, morph into somebody else to stay safe, they resourced it, okay? Grandiosity. Nobody likes narcissists. Nobody likes narcissists. Oh, he's got such a high view of himself. So high on himself, such a grandiose sense of self. That is a diagnostic criteria for narcissism is a grandiose sense of self. But a grandiose sense of self is the antidote to deep internal pain and shame. Now, I'm not saying, oh, well, narcissists are just in pain. Go, go be friends with them. Go get married to them. No, these are not safe people. And people who are not aware of their narcissism and they're not working on it are extremely unsafe in relationship. However, that doesn't mean we can't have compassion for it and understand it. It is a resource. It is a way that very wounded people survive. So I want to talk about a couple of these in a little bit more detail. Utilizing your support system. This is not a weakness. It is a strength. Why? Because it means you know yourself. And self-knowledge is never a weakness. Never. That is always a strength. Self-knowledge and self-awareness are always strengths. I'm going to tell you a story that some of you have read if you've read The Odyssey. But one of my favorite adventures that Ulysses, who's this, you know, journeyman, this sort of every man who goes on this journey, this quest, and then returns to his home after he's beaten all the odds and overcome all these obstacles. It's Greek mythology. But he goes out on this quest and he has to encounter these different trials and tribulations. And in every danger that he encounters, he encounters a part of himself. And one of the dangers that he has to survive are the sirens. And the sirens are these creatures that live on this island and they sing a song that is so beautiful that no one can resist it. Everyone goes to the island to hear the song of the sirens. That's where we get the phrase, the siren song. So Ulysses knows that no man has ever been able to sail by the sirens and survived because once you go to the island and you listen to their song, they eat you. They kill you. I think they eat you. It's been a long time since I've read it, but you die. So the siren song is this luring but lethal song and no one has ever survived. So Ulysses knows that he is not stronger than any man. And this is what's really important when you understand your support system and the importance of a support system, okay? It is a resource for a reason. Ulysses knows that he's no better and no stronger than any man, but he wants to hear the siren song. So what does he do? He tells the men on his ship to tie him to the mast and they tie him tightly and he cannot get out. And then he tells them all to put wax in their ears so that they can't hear the siren song because he knows if they hear it, they will steer the boat toward the island. So he's knowing the weakness of a man. He's taking every precaution to make sure he lives. 
So he knows himself and knows that he's no stronger than anybody else. If they died, I will die. I won't get past it if they didn't. So there's a humility in it. You know, even stronger men have not been able to resist the sirens. I sure as hell can't either. So he tells the men, put wax in your ears so that you won't hear it. Tie me to the mast because I want to hear it. And no matter what I say, don't untie me from this mast. Talk about self-knowledge. Talk about the knowledge of your own human limitations. And sure enough, they sail by and he's screaming, let me free, let me free, let me go, let me go to the sirens. But you lose your mind. The temptation is that strong. You lose your mind, you get into it, and then you die, which is another metaphor for addiction. And the men can't hear him screaming, and they also know, because he's the captain of the ship, do not untie him from the mast, and they're following orders, and then he gets by it. So he's heard the siren song, but because of his self-knowledge, his humility, and his support system, he gets through. What does that teach us about ourselves? Friends, we've got to know our limitations. We need to know what others are good at and what we need strength in. No one is strong and good at everything. Who do you call for empathy? Who do you know you can pick up the phone and call them and they're not going to try and fix it and they're not going to tell you what you did wrong and they're not going to make it all about themselves and they're not going to distract you from your own pain. They're just going to be with you in it. Who do you call for solutions? Logical, pragmatics, problem solving people. Who do you call for a pep talk? This is the optimist in your life. Who do you call when you just need to see the brighter side of things? Who do you call when you need to just laugh through it? That's my sister, Michelle. She's my laugher. No matter what I bring, I will eventually wind up laughing through it. Who do you call when you need to duck out of it and just, you know, go do something fun? This is your support system. Another resource, shifting gears, is self-reflection. Some people can do this much more easily than others. It's innate. Now, can you learn to do it? Yes. If you've ever been to therapy, whether you're good at it or not, you're going to be asked to self-reflect. But some people have an easier time with this than others. What is self-reflection? It's the conscious examination of yourself. It's consistent time invested in self-knowledge. So in therapy, we ask when we're resourcing the client, okay, that's what it's called, resourcing the client's strengths or resourcing the client. We ask, what got you through? What did you tell yourself to keep going? Who treated you with respect, with kindness? What was your reason for living? What did you do to deal with the pain you were in? And I'll be honest with you, most of the time, even the most self-reflective clients I have, most of the time when I ask them that question or those series of questions, they don't know. And I'm willing to bet that right now as you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't know either unless you've done a heck of a lot of work. If I pose those questions to you today, how would you answer? What got you through? What did you tell yourself to keep going? That's your inner voice. What people gave you life, gave you strength? That's probably an easier question to answer than the ones within yourself. What was your reason for living? What did you do to deal with the pain you were in? How did you cope with the pain? Friends, these are the questions that are the other side of the story. The story is not just what you went through. The story is how you got through it. What in you allowed you to keep going? What internal resources did you have to access to survive the hardship in your life? What voice in your head, what words did it speak that gave you the will, the grit 
to keep going? What goal did you have that you kept your eyes on that gave you the strength and the courage to go on? Knowing these answers is knowing the other half of the story. Because if you are just telling yourself and maybe other people, maybe your therapist, what happened to you, you are telling half of the story. That's not the whole story. The story is how you, yes, you listening right now overcame it, how you got through it. But Vanessa, I didn't overcome it. I'm still in it. Okay, but you're alive. You're living. You're listening to this podcast. You pressed play. You're still with us. You're still in the fight. Why? How? Answer those questions. That's the whole story. I want to walk you through, before we wrap up today, I want to walk you through an example of a weakness that's actually a resource, okay? Let's talk about something like conflict avoidance. Conflict avoidance is generally regarded as a weakness. This is not typically seen as a strength. But the reason I want to give you this example is because the things that you hate about yourself, the quote-unquote weaknesses, are the flip sides of your strengths. And I talked about that last week. But those quote unquote weaknesses are what you used to survive. So conflict avoidance. I might ask someone, when did you develop this? When were you aware that you were avoiding conflict? How did you use it growing up? When did you use it growing up? What situations came up in your life where you thought, okay, the best place for me is kind of lay low and stay out. Now, here's the magic question. How did it serve you? How did this behavior serve you? Healthy or unhealthy? I don't care if it's adaptive or maladaptive, which is another way of saying healthy or unhealthy. Okay? I don't care if it was morally right or wrong for all of you out there. Well, some things are right and some things are wrong. Okay, fine. Yes, we can go down the moral road. But if we're looking at this and we're telling ourselves the whole story, even sometimes the things we did that were immoral, We're trying to meet a need. And the challenge for you today is to ask yourself, how did it serve me? And this is going to require that you give yourself more compassion than you're used to giving yourself. And I'm not going to apologize for challenging you to give yourself compassion. How did your behaviors serve you? Typically, they kept you safe and they kept you going. So let's look at conflict avoidance. I might say to a client, so you really know when to keep your head down and let things resolve themselves. And sometimes a light bulb will go off. Well, I've never looked at it that way. Well, that is what we're doing, right? If you're avoiding conflict, you're saying this can probably work itself out. You know how to let other people find their own answers. And then I might wonder how many people have been strengthened internally by being with you because they had to find the resolution and the answers within themselves. You're a really good judge of when an extra energy push would ignite a situation. When a little push is too much, you can gauge that. And there's a humility in that, isn't there? Because you don't assume your presence or your words are the answer to every problem. And we all know people who do. (laughs) They can't help it. They get in there. I have the solution. I have uh, just do what I say or let me help you, you know. But people who are conflict avoidant typically are like, I'm not the answer. There's a humility about that. And maybe you have a deep trust sort of in the world, in the universe, in God, whatever you believe in, that eventually things are going to work themselves out. Maybe that's why you don't push in. Now, what's the flip side? Well, sometimes your voice is needed. 
right? When did this damage you or damage your relationships? When did laying low cost you? What did it cost you? Okay, that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is to look at it as a resource because it was. And I guarantee you that staying out of conflict and laying low and keeping your mouth shut as a child, I promise you it kept you safe from emotional harm. Let's look at alcohol abuse or drug addiction. Same questions. When did you develop it? When did you use it growing up? How did it keep you out of pain? How did it serve you? Again, the magic question. It usually kept you safe and kept you going. And then I might say, well, you avoided some pretty devastating feelings, didn't you? You knew when you needed to check out. You knew when it was too much. You probably have a good sense of when you're feeling overwhelmed. And you knew that what you were facing was beyond your ability to cope. And so you leaned on a coping mechanism, the drug, the alcohol, just to help you get through. Yeah, but you don't know what I did to get my hands on drugs, Vanessa. You don't know what I did when I drank. Well, I might say you were very resourceful and dogged about getting your hands on the thing that would keep you away from the pain that might have killed you. Talk about resourceful. Yeah, but I stole. I mean, I did terrible things. Okay, well, then that tells me that you value your own life. You fought. You fought your moral compass. You fought other people to keep yourself alive. No, I was keeping my addiction alive. No, you were keeping yourself alive because the emotions that you would have felt underneath that addiction may have taken you out. Friends, this is the whole story. Things are not as dark and as black and as white as we think they are. The flip side of addiction, of course, is when did this damage you and your relationships? And the answer for that is long. You know, what, what did it cost you? What did it cost you to, to get into this? Okay, that's a very tough question to answer because it's usually pretty painful, right? But there's a whole story here of how we survive. And whoever you are listening out there, I could walk through whatever weaknesses you think you have, and I could tell you and explain to you and help you see how those were resources. You actually were resourcing your strengths, and it got you through. It's time to tell ourselves the whole story. Our minds are hardwired to remember trauma and pain because they stick out. And I use this example with my clients all the time. If you go to a bank back in the day, okay, back in the day when it wasn't electronic, you actually had to go to a bank if you're under the age of 30 and you're listening to this, you had to go to a bank to make a bank deposit. Okay. And I know some of you still do this, but like back in the day, you couldn't do it on a phone because there were no cell phones. So you had to drive to the bank and fill out a deposit slip and, you know, make a bank deposit. So now I'm realizing that my example here is obsolete, but go with it. Okay. And let's say you did this a hundred times. Are you going to remember every single time you went to the bank? No because it's uneventful. It's just normal life. And then one day you went to the bank and a bomb went off. Do you think you're going to remember that time? Yes, you will. That's how trauma stands out in our brain. That's why people might say, I don't remember all the good times, but I remember the bad times because trauma sticks out in our brain. That's how we're hardwired. And I'm not going to get into the neurology of that, but that's just how we're hardwired. So we, what does that mean? It means we have to train ourselves consciously and purposefully to dig into what made us strong enough to survive what we survived? Because if we tell the story, we'll tell the story of what happened. As if by magic, we sort of got here to adulthood. But we don't tell the story of what we did to survive. Now, here's the thing about grit. You can develop it. It might be innate for some people, meaning you're born with it or you're not. 
You're born with more of it or less of it. But we do know that we can grow grit. And that's in uh, Angela Duckworth's book. Okay, she talks about that, how you can develop grit. You can grow grit. You can plant a little seed and water it. Just like you can grow a plant, you can grow grit. And I want to say that you're already using your resources. Now, whether their long-term effect is healthy or not, they are what kept you alive and what's keeping you alive. So I want to ask you today, what are they? What is the whole story? And I'm here to tell you, if you have survived any type of trauma whatsoever, you already have grit. So put that on your list of resources. Yeah, but Vanessa, I haven't done anything with my life. I'm just a regular person. Well, then your goal must have been to keep living because you did that. No, I re- no, you did. You kept eating. You kept drinking water. You kept even the most basic levels of self-care. You did that and you're doing that today. And you must want to grow because you're listening to this podcast. Friends, it's time to tell ourselves the whole story. I got through this by doing this. I used this resource to help me get through. Even if it was unhealthy, it worked for me. I am resilient. I am persistent. On some level, I am determined to evolve and grow. I have displayed courage in the face of fear. I have known when I needed help and accepted it. I have met my pain with creative solutions for survival. I have transformed my wounds into wisdom. Tell yourself the whole story, not just that you did it, but how. You need to know that half of you. All right, let's pause there. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Vanessa the Therapist. And if this is your 20th time or 30th time, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of this community. Please share this podcast with someone who needs to hear it. If you have time, it means the world. If you subscribe to it, that really helps our listing rank go up. Share the podcast, leave a five-star review, all the good things. I want to answer a couple questions about the workshop because some of you are reaching out to me on social media and asking me about the toolbox workshop. If you are thinking of attending, do I have to come with a partner? No, you do not. If you are married and you can come alone, that is great. That would be awesome. If you can come with your partner, your spouse, your boyfriend, your lover, whoever it is, that would be awesome. But if you are single, can I still come to the toolbox workshop? Yes, you can. And you should, because these tools are necessary in every single relationship of your life, not just romantic ones. These are universal human tools. Okay. So that answers that question. Tickets are available. You can just go to my website, vanessalondino.com. And the link to register is there on the website. I think that covers it. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being with us. And remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. My friends, tell yourself the whole story, not only of what you've done, but how you've done it and learn how to love that person. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.